Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to, to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight we're talking about the sequel that built off one of the biggest sci-fi hits in history and brought the concept of space marines as we know it to popular science fiction. That's right, it's the sequel as bad at SEO as the original Aliens. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight I have a panel of cinephiles and cinebites ready to unhinge their outer jaws and sink their striker mouths into this film. First, my co-host and comic book writer, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? I have used the word moist more than any other movie I've ever seen. It's a very, very moist movie. Uh, next up, and co-host, comic book artist, and certified wet and sticky monster aficionado, Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? Um, I'm not going to say sweaty, but, um, you know, uh, arable. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Going with Emily the has atmosphere. Tonight. I have atmosphere. <laughs> a lot of. I'm processing it. Showing. All right, and our special guest tonight. We're so happy to have you guys. Writers on the TV shows Super Ninjas and Supernatural, authors of the Star Wars Join the Resistance books, a number of comics, and the cut and run audio drama series from Audible. But first and foremost in our hearts, the writers and creators of the Thrilling Adventure Hour. It's Ben Acker and Ben Blacker. How are you guys tonight? Um, we're great. It speaks for both of us. <laughs> yeah. All Bens are good. 100% good Bens across the board. We've got a wide selection of Bens, all A+. <laughs> well, we are so happy to have you guys with us tonight. I know... Uh, both Emily and I are longtime uh, Thrilling Adventure Hour fans, and uh, I'm myself a couple-time contributor to that as well. I don't, but we are uh, talking about Aliens tonight. This was uh, one you guys uh, were excited to to chat about, and coincidentally, we had just done Alien, so it's uh, it was a really cool thing. The basics of this, uh, if anybody doesn't know, before we start, it's directed by James Cameron. You know that guy, James Cameron. He's done a couple okay. of other movies. It is written by James Cameron, David Giller, Walter Hill, and based on the characters by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusset. It stars a lot of people. Uh, Sigourney Weaver, Michael Bann, Paul Reiser, Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, William Hope, Jeanette Goldstein, and Elle Matthews, just to name some of them. And as far as the uh, scare level of this movie, guys, would you say that this is... Uh, a not spooky movie, a spooky movie, or a terrifying movie, or something that's just existentially disconcerting? I'd say spooky with the existentially terrifying still mostly being capitalism. Yeah, and the gaslighting. So, existential. Gaslighting in the name of capitalism. I so. mean, yeah. These, these guys are scary, and there's some, some downright uh, frightening monster designs in here, and... Uh, there's at least a couple of scenes in here that have genuine just sort of, oh shit, moments. Minor that, spoilers, uh, but in terms of gaslighting, I definitely reached the point of the movie where my notes were just, Burke, the fuck, over and over again. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk a lot about Burke. I feel like he's an anomaly in, in uh, 
space, especially space horror movies, but we'll, we'll jump in on him a little bit. Uh, and as far as trigger warnings for people, um, obviously we said gaslighting, there's lots of violent death and gore impaling. There's some racism and sexism in here. Good old fashioned racism, sexism, uh, claustrophobia, and in all caps, capitalism. Um, any, anything else people ought to look out for if, if they're uh, thinking about watching this one? Multiple sets of teeth. It's lots of, is that, lots is, of are people triggered by that? If you don't like things that are wet and slimy, this is maybe not the <laughs> film for you. Um, yeah, if you have any sort of issues with genital dentata kind of things, then this is this definitely one that you want to watch out for because this one has it. <laughs> A lot of teeth. So, so many teeth. Yeah, everything that felt implicit in the first movie is very much explicit in this one. Um, on top of that, uh, just in a major key, right? Yes, yes. in a major key. Um, yeah, well, we get some good. Course, we get some good acid depth. So I guess if you got a thing about acid in particular, yeah, there's a lot of acid and burning in here, which um, I was grateful for because I feel like the acid in the first one was more of an environmental logistical problem, and I felt like this movie capitalized more on the horror of you can barely even fight back against these things without the act of fighting back kind of backfiring and killing you. And we're talking about like corrosive agents, not like LSD, just to be clear. If you haven't seen any of these alien movies. <laughs> That's a way different movie. You kill yeah. an alien and just like, you just start tripping out. Way different that's movie. That's what what start the first Star Trek movie was about. I would make that movie. It would make it be much good, harder to get I away. Think. I feel like. Um, I mean, they've tried. Yeah, and the, the sort of what it's about. I mean, it follows pretty closely on on the original. Um, you know, and, and it picks up with Ripley arriving back home late, and uh, them then sending a whole bunch of uh, space marines to go check out this planet uh, where where these aliens were. And it's just everything that's in the first one amplified to like the nth degree. Um, if there was one alien, now there's a lot of aliens. The title says it all. <laughs> it's your classic escalation sequel, turning horror into a horror action. Kind of like if we can't do the same beats, let's make it bigger and shift the genre. And one thing I should say is that um, the one that we're reviewing tonight is the special edition, which apparently is all we you can find streaming these days. From what I, from what I heard, um, there are some important differences, but uh, um, Ben Acker, Ben Blocker, did you guys watch the special edition or the are we talking about the theatrical edition? I have seen um, this movie so many times. Um, <laughs> that this time when I put it on, I was like, you know what? I haven't seen the theatrical edition in a long time. I think I'll watch that. <laughs> so okay. I did, but I've seen, I've seen the uh, special edition a ton of times. Well, okay. I guess spoilers to me, the very idea that the scene where Ripley learns her daughter has like lived a whole life and passed away was cut from any version of this movie is insanity. Like, that's her care. Like, that is the start of her character journey. That informs her entire character. I can't imagine how this movie ever could have been released with that scene on the cutting room floor. The first I don't room. know. Can we, can, do you want to talk about that for a sec? I mean... Yeah, yeah sure. Um, 
Ben Acker is the best writer I know, and I would like to hear his opinion on this because I do think, so I, I watched the theatrical version, which doesn't have the scene uh, in which we learn that Ripley is a mother. Um, so it doesn't make her less heroic. It doesn't make her less motherly. So like Ben, I'm curious to hear if you think that we need to see that or if it can be, if that's the sort of information that just can be implied through character action. I, the version I saw uh, was, did not have that. I have not seen this a million times, so I did not notice that oh, well. it was gone. And it did not, like I, hearing you say that, uh, Ben, uh, I'm like, oh, that's, that's a cool detail, but I, I don't think it would have made or broke the movie. It wouldn't, I'm fine without it. Like it didn't make her less heroic, as we're saying. It didn't make her less motherly to me. It didn't make that, it didn't, it didn't bump. It doesn't bump now to hear it. Like it feels like a cool detail to be like, did you know there was a version where they said this and that, and, and then you'd be like, ooh. But like, I think that's maybe the best use of that is hearing it now on this podcast. Yeah, I mean, to me, it just informs so much of her mental state kind of going into this journey and also just the theme of promises that she couldn't keep her promise to her daughter. So that partial motivation to why she just goes to every extreme to keep her promise to Newt. I just think it does. It just sets up so much of her character. It's just a crazy scene to me not to include just because especially just for how effective the acting was I like I really felt so much for Ripley in that scene Sigourney Weaver just did a great job just expressing just like shock and grief yeah yeah she does a fantastic job throughout this movie um and we'll definitely get to that but uh yeah um, I I think like that that makes some difference to me I don't think it's a huge I don't think it's a movie killing difference one way or another Uh, I don't think it's something you notice not being there but once you've seen it and you're like uh Oh, like that tells you things about Ripley that you didn't know that aren't included in Alien. Like that's not uh, a bit about that. That like you would think, you know, I I think more than anything that informs to me her decision to like actually go on this mission because like she had this life and this life is gone. Like her -hmm. her daughter is gone. There is nothing there for her. They've, uh, you know, they shortly after this, you know, before the mission comes up, they strip her pilot's license. So everything like that she has on earth is, is toast. So like, even though, you know, everything uh, about this mission, she, she knows is doomed from the outset. Um, You know, she still is like, well, I can't sleep. (laughs) So (laughs) I guess I'm going on this mission. Also just uh, Burke, having that information and trying to withhold it for his own like personal gain just as an just an early on of just how easy and casual gaslighting comes and manipulation comes to him yeah oh Oh my god let's jump in at the beginning here because i want to talk about burke because i think burke is kind of an interesting feature of this movie um i'm a fan of new york (laughs) we pick up on the, the shuttle uh from the nostromo that ripley has gone to sleep in uh, she gets rescued by a salvage crew sort of accidentally. They're out looking for salvage for cash and um, they find her there and their, their reaction is sort of disappointment in that they're uh, losing their, uh, their salvage money. Um, and she sort of wakes up on this gateway space station. Uh, looks like it's just off, uh, just outside of Earth. Um, and she gets sort of this debriefing and medical recovery 
she's still having like nightmares about uh, you know aliens bursting out of her chest which god having seen that i can imagine you would have those nightmares forever um, but then we meet uh burke who's played by paul reiser who's her first like interaction with the company in this movie uh which is is identified you know in this movie as wayland yutani uh it doesn't have a name in the first one it's just the company literally from the moment that uh she meets burke he's like gaslighting her and trying to get stuff from her and, and working her on behalf of the company and the thing that's really interesting about burke to me is that like everybody else in this movie is like they're she's a space miner they're all space marines like everybody is uh is hard and dark futuristic and they're part of this like they feel like they're part of this world that they set up in the first one and burke paul reiser walks in with his normal like new york accent and is just like representing the company he is clearly from like space new york well also like, there's like some level of future fashion and paul reiser just showing up in blue jeans <laughs> like a button down just a big puffy blue like north face vest it's, it's like a Marty great McFly. outfit <laughs> yeah it's a great outfit it's marty mcfly and aliens <laughs> yes um, his whole his his delivery of um, I work for the company, but but don't hold that against me. I'm really a good guy. Like from the get, because like, it's so shitty. I feel so often when we get the shady, slippery character, we get something like Littlefinger in Game of Thrones, where it's like, okay, you're just so obviously shady. Why would anyone ever trust you, Burke? Like you get like I get it. Like he is charming. He is like witty like he can like fake compassion to a degree like he is someone that i do feel can like you get to like why you someone would lower their guard around him and why and how he'd be like really able to manipulate people yeah and he feels to me very like middle management um like he's and throughout these like courtroom scenes where she's going through what what's happened to her and all of the like people in charge are basically denying all of this he's sort of sitting off to the side giving her these looks like oh man i don't know can't what, what, what are you gonna do um ben's how, how do you feel about paul reiser and burke i feel like paul reiser is so likable in this yeah that, like his his like his heel turn laid in the thing feels like he the actor is apologizing for the script that he's a part of you know like <laughs> he's like Fuck, i i'm rooting for you like you so by yeah like he's, he radiates such a good guy vibe that like it's it's interesting that you don't get the little finger mustache twirl of this yeah. guy yeah um because like and i, and I don't know if it, like if it makes it a little harder to buy and then you're like well he did it i mean he did it he's to you, me, can't, the, you can't argue with it. There's there's uh, facehuggers in that room. The, uh, <laughs> Burke is a fuck. Paul Reiser is amazing. <laughs> yes. Like, just want to make that distinction. Like, he also has that thing that I think, you know, I think we responded to so strongly in Alien, which is like, he's, it's a super realistic performance. Yes. Like, the fact that, I, I mean, I don't know, nobody nobody's wearing like shiny uh, onesies in this like I don't know what the future outfits you're talking about are um, because they're wearing like jumpsuits because they are they are you know workers um, 
they're whatever they are in that first one cargo haulers i don't know i yeah. didn't pay attention <laughs> um no i actually watched it last week in, in anticipation <laughs> of rewatching those um but like that burke would wear you know flannel shirts and stuff is absolutely in character with the world that alien has created for us and i think that aliens is such an extension of that where like the only thing that feels science fiction-y is um the weird car that she drives uh through to to the aliens yeah the batmobile the, yeah <laughs> batmobile that was... during our grand theft auto lv246 sequence yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't, we, don't we meet burke and he's wearing a suit a, a pretty conventional 80s suit but with a popped yes not a popped collar mm-hmm. but a popped lapel it's yeah, yeah it's, it's like a half collar yeah <laughs> it's almost like a um i can't remember the name of it you know what i'm talking about pop we lapel <laughs> we all saw it yeah, we In fact, saw let's, let's skip the recap. We've all seen the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so the aliens are full of LSD. And yep. uh, <laughs> the aliens are full of LSD and Paul Reiser can fucking rock a flannel vest combo. Yeah, it, this is I feel like this part. This, so she's in these corporate meetings and everything, and she's kind of up against the company. And I think that this this is the beginning of her turning point where she is now not just the the kind of final girl victim that she was in the previous movie now she's she has a a completely new conflict that you know she tries and then initially fails to confront which is you know trying to convince the company of this issue um but you know we have a lot of really nice uh setups here where you have all of these we have these um new uh, you know, she had just survived, and then this is her reward: is to be like stripped of rank and, um, you know, basically bumped to the bottom of this company's food chain and lose um, fifty-seven years of her life on top of that. Yeah, and lose her daughter, so, and you know, like that's where the like the real existential horror of like, especially these first two movies, with its focus on Waylon Yutani and kind of this corporation as as always, kind of like the secondary villain. And that almost is, is that no matter what Ripley does, no matter how hard she works and survives, this fucking company just keeps throwing her back into the maw over and over again. And later she does say something about, she's speaking to Burke, um, and this is much later in the film, but she says, you know, I don't know which species is worse, which is a pretty... Oh, she has an amazing line. line, and I wrote it down. It's like, I don't see them fucking each other over for a percentage. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I would argue Burke is the bad guy of this movie. Like, the aliens just exist. This is just, like, how they they get by is they, like, implant horrible embryos of people that launch through their chest, and that's just, like, that's just the way they give birth. Like, this was just how they do. Uh, But Burke is, like, out and out a bad guy. Like, this uh, this scene, I mean, much later on, where like he literally just like puts two live face huggers in a room with Ripley and a child, and it's just mm-hmm. like, oops, I guess I'm gonna pretend that just happened, and nobody, no, nobody knew what happened. Barely knew that child. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that if if you met this uh, tiny moppet with this whatever her accent is. Would you, do you not feel like you would immediately adopt her? The Hadley's Hope accent. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that that's your native LV246 accent. And I want to talk real quick about LV246 because we're talking about 
uh, capitalism and classism in this movie. This colony was built on the, the same planet as we see in this uh, um, meeting, the corporate meeting scene. This colony was built on the same planet that they went to in the first movie. So there's this ship that is full of vaginas and it has the eggs in it. The uh, colony has been set up there for a while. They haven't found, I mean, it's a, it's a planet, so. I definitely need a reaction gif of Sigourney Weaver's face when they tell her in the meeting that they set up a fucking colony on the <laughs> they shake and bake planet. Colony. So this place is not really much better than it was in the first movie. They, they can breathe the air, but that is it. It's still rainy and shitty and full of rocks. And in the next scene, we see Newt's family out prospecting from the original colony because they want to leave, or I don't know if they want to leave or they want property rights, but they're, it's so shitty that they're out in rain and sweat and vagina egg forever land trying to prospect with the whole family in their truck like what is going on here we, we find out much later that burke is responsible for this that burke was like hey somebody go like check out this area there's something going on there definitely you guys will make some money off of it for the company like just just go check it out doesn't tell anybody what it is and uh of course this like as we'll see very shortly leads to uh the you know the dad getting face huggered and then them taking him back to the colony and then mm -hmm. by the time that they like by the time that Ripley hears anything about this they just can't contact the colony anymore <laughs> there's just it's nobody it, picking up the phone I don't know much about it I know there've been a ton of alien comics from Dark Horse and Marvel whatnot I wonder if there was ever a comic about like what happened to the colony in the lead up to Ripley and the Marines arriving. Like that just seems ripe for like spinoff comic material. Yeah. I mean, how desperate do these people have to be to go to this shithole and like set up a whole comic colony with like how many families was it? Several, two digits, you know, number of families. Um, I want to say, I think they said 70. Was yeah. It? Enough to wallpaper a whole reactor. That's all I know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, really eager. Just <laughs> uh, thing. anyway. Yeah, so they tell Ripley about this. Uh, Berg is trying to get her to come along with the Marines to go just check this out and give us some advice. Obviously, she's never going to get off the ship. There's never going to be any kind of problems. You know, they just they just want her to uh, to be around to, to just advise. Ripley uh, leaves multiple ships within minutes of be of this mission. And I screamed at my screen every time. This is not in the fucking contract. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, I mean, but... thankfully, I guess, because ships don't do well in this movie. Yeah. I mean, I've done a lot of things that weren't in the contract, but... Um... <laughs> I, specifically... I told myself I wouldn't overshare. <laughs> but, I mean, right off the bat, I mean, she had so few ground rules and doesn't have to get off the ship was one of them. There are families down it, there, so... It's very realistic. I'm. We didn't see it, but I'm sure it took very little manipulation from Burke to get her off the ship once she was there. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, this is this whole mission, not only is it, you know, does she have nothing back on Earth or back in space New York or whatever, but she also has no other validation now. Like, it's just her memories and then the the company, everybody else denying that this happened. And she's dealing with this, this trauma night after night. She has no family. And so... The only thing that she really has to to validate her trauma is to do what Burke says, and essentially, which is, you know, once once we're on the ship to LV two four six, how we feeling about these Marines? 
Our okay. classic space marines. Apone, oh, the second the cryotube goes up, immediately the cigar goes to his mouth. He is the sargest sarge to ever sarge. I didn't even need, I didn't bother looking, remembering his name. It was like, that's sarge. That's every sarge I've ever seen. That is, look into my eye. They, yeah. and also I Halo was, just stole this guy whole cloth. I like. can only assume he was genetically engineered in a government lab to create the perfect Sarge. He's not <laughs> a sergeant, he is Sarge. All the Space Marine stuff. Like, I didn't see this movie when I was a kid, but I essentially saw this movie when I was a kid because I went to camp. I went to summer camp, and every kid at summer camp said every line from this so often. Um, I don't know if that's a universal experience or if that was my summer camp, but like, Everything. It was this unfolded jacket was just the vernacular of youth at a certain age. Okay, but- I also saw Full Metal Jacket at summer camp. Why the fuck were they showing Full Metal Jacket to thirteen-year-olds? What the I, fuck? I just watched Hatchet at summer camp. I didn't even fucking watch Full Metal Jacket. I will like, tell you, I saw, when I saw this in high school, though, one of my friend's little brothers tried to be a cool, put-down artist by saying, look into my eye, but he didn't get that he had to use the middle finger to make it an effective put down. So he just pointed with his pointer finger to his dumb eye and said, look into my eye, and then like expected applause and a parade for that zinger that he saw in that movie because he didn't get it. (laughs) I'm not saying that's the most memorable thing about aliens, but to me, Every time, such a weird. It's it's part of this weird fucking trend of like '80s R-rated movies that got turned into animated series and like marketed to kids as toys. Because like I definitely had a shit ton of like aliens action figures. And like, is there an aliens animated series? I would watch the hell out of that. Me too. I really hope. I I very distinctly remember there being a whole bunch of different types of aliens in like the. Uh, action figures and stuff uh, mm. that never, as far as I can tell, appear in any Aliens movie. It needs if it's, I would love, I would love a, like a '90s style movie turned animated series where it would have to be they find and adopt a friendly xenomorph who then helps them fight other alien, like mean aliens they encounter on other planets. I thought that was Alien Resurrection. That's basically what happened in Alien Resurrection, right? I just that's need a Xenomorph Godzuki is what I need. Yeah. yeah. Like, really, I need this to just be... Oh, interesting. You ever saw the 90s American animated Godzilla series? That, but Xenomorphs. Wasn't there Absolutely. like a 60s American Godzilla or like a 70s one? That's the Godzuki one, right? Yeah, the, the 60s or 70s one is the Godzuki one where basically they have Godzilla Scrappy-Doo as part of the crew. (laughs) This is the fucking worst thing that's ever... Any worst idea anybody has ever come up with. Yes. Okay, so we have Apone. We have Gorman. Yeah, Gorman Um, is the lieutenant. He's in charge. He doesn't know anything. He's done one mission. He's afraid of everything, has no idea what he's doing. He graduated officer school and... That's it. And now he thinks he's bitten for his britches. I thought he had a nice little character arc, though. Yeah, I do, too. Yeah. Honestly, like, yeah. you hate him, and then you're like, oh, he's he's going down with the ship. Like, that's that's kind of great. I also yeah. think he's very relatable because, you know, he's, yeah. he's trying. We're all to cowards. Yeah. <laughs> 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 fucking trying, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes. 
his i mean you know his his big moment is to have a panic attack and not be able to like save his guys while ripley's behind him going get him out of there get him out of there he's like i don't know guys i don't know we yeah, have like it it's actually really good plotting in that it serves ripley right you get to see her do stuff um and also it sets him up as this character who then gets to change over the course of it in a very small way but at least like he gets that um, it's an incredibly well written and well structured movie. I was, I was not expecting that and hadn't really watched it in that context, um, but the structure is actually phenomenal. We have the absolutely delightful Bill Paxton as Hudson. Hudson's a lot. Hudson is easily the most like hateable one early on because he's the he's both racist and misogynist within like his first two lines, uh, and Once like. Again, I'm not saying I like the character of Hudson. I'm liking the energy of Bill Paxton brings to the performance. It's he very numbers though at summer camp. <laughs> I bet, yeah. It's huge. Oh, I definitely was like, say the line, Hudson. Say the game over line. <laughs> that never stops being delightful. Like just watching him do that. It's so it's just delightful. <laughs> Some people can cry on command. I feel like Bill Paxton can sweat on command. Like, like Hudson is just like so sweaty and so just like panicking for the second half of this movie. Like every scene, he's just like, never, guys, I don't know. It <laughs> what never are we stops, doing here? We're going to die. It never stops being satisfying seeing someone that smug be so scared. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he feels like he is kind of reprising, speaking of problematic, but he, he's reprising his role in weird science. Um, like this is, you know, if if what's his fuck ever turned, you know, if he was never turned into a literal pile of shit, then he would have become Hudson. <laughs> um, and the very it's a very thing. it's a very sweaty movie overall. Like yeah. I couldn't help but notice how sweaty Paul Reiser was. Everyone was sweaty. Everyone was sweaty, though. Uh, you're you're totally right. Yeah, I don't know if I'm, I mean I know acting is a very very sweaty job. Um, Two things: acting is reacting, acting is sweating a lot. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's just my. Um, I it was it it raised questions to me like in a good way, in a like I want to know more about this world way when they introduce the space marines and there's like eight of them like the idea of sending a marines is like let's put as many grunts in the way of the thing and overwhelm it with numbers but we've got eight people who may or may not have ever seen an extraterrestrial well they have that line like is this another bug hunt which Which implies that they haven't seen a bug right yeah, like what? What is a bug hunt to them? I have questions about. Oh, that implied to me that they had seen. Yeah, that's other what I thought. Aliens, yeah. not necessarily like these aliens, but other aliens that they had to go and exterminate. I mean, they I, name it. Xenomorph. I absolutely believe Wayland Utani is just casually finding and exterminating extraterrestrial yeah. species. Yeah, they're, they're that, that checks out in Australia. You know, it's uh, potentially, but I think that it also could refer to like another waste of our time. Us nine guys going to a planet where there's supposed to be something and not seeing anything. That's also, I mean, yeah. That's, and that's what I mean. No. Like, either version works. I want to know more. I want to know, like, did there used to be a hundred of them? Well, there's uh, or... one scene in particular, and it's all the way near the end. And the movie really glosses over it. And I had a problem because I needed to see every second of this process. And that's the alien queen learning how to use an elevator. <laughs> She just knew. She's just a girl boss. They're a hive. 
just some sort of genetic memory when you're implanted in a human and you come out like you just have some human knowledge in there i guess they cut the power i mean they know how to cut power they know how to use elevators that's really it like yeah what else do you need really she just Um, so ripley knew it right yeah yeah She's like, oh, so I press the button and then I get on the phone. I'm sure there'll be something on the other side of this that I can't exactly see because I don't have eyes or anything, but like a pressing motion and I can do that. Yeah, like I need to see that whole process. I need to see like the head cogging. Like, okay, do I press that? Like, okay, wrong button. I need to press that. Like, I just want to see every part of Alien Queen discovers (laughs) elevators. Yeah, honestly, it, it it took us six months to teach our dog to sit. I don't see I don't see the alien queen figuring out the that elevator in half a minute. She's all instinct, man. She ripped off her ovipositor just to put a chase on. If the movie <laughs> had been if the movie had been ten minutes longer, the alien queen would have found her own power loader that she then would have figured out how to operate. I mean, now I'm mad at this movie for not doing that. Just climbs back in, gets in her own power loader, they fight again. Just get larger and larger power loaders. Uh, <laughs> I feel like our opposite of Hudson, we have Hicks. Hicks's greatest quality is listening. He can listen to Ripley and do what the fuck she says. Because nobody else in this movie can do that. And Hicks is like, well, she's fucking survived a lot of stuff. And she seems to know what she's talking about. So I'm going to do what Ripley says. When, yeah. when Ripley is like, get the fuck out, nuke it from orbit. Which is what I was saying. Like, fuck it, just get out. Just get out. Just nuke everything. And Hicks was immediately like, yeah, we're doing that plan. I have my notes. I'm like, this is why you live. Yeah. <laughs> Hicks is a sleeper hero, like, like literally, because he's literally sleeping through the I first part. I love that character detail <laughs> of him. Like, when they're on, like, the drop ship in atmosphere and everyone's getting jittery and nervous and he's just taking a nap. Like, that's yeah. just such a great character. I mean, Hicks it. sleeps through the drop ship going down and then he sleeps through the final battle. <laughs> because like right. he's, he's unconscious in the ship while Ripley is having like the you know the final orchestral battle in there. If I uh, can do my a little bit of armchair quarterbacking, like the one, if I like if we if I time travel back to the script phase and get a job editing for Fox so I can make notes on Alien script, I wish there had been a just a little scene when there in the ship when you're introduced to the marines and you're introduced to, like bishop doing his thing and everyone's just kind of hanging out and your basic intro to characters i wish there had been just a little scene between ripley and hicks early on establishing just some kind of little rapport between them earlier in the movie i mean i i think it could have it it that may I, have been nice but i don't I'm know i'm not saying the movie needed it by any means i just would have liked it yeah Benz? It it was hard for me to until like halfway through to remember who Hicks was. Um, like Michael Bean is such a forgettable actor. <laughs> <laughs> and I say this, rest in Big peace. Fan of the show. Big fan of the show, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, like I I didn't even remember that he was Terminator's okay, dad. Record, when it was Bean, going not on. dead. Michael Bean's still alive. Rest his soul. Um, like yeah, and and he does a good job once you sort of once he's more front and center, but like um, um, all the other Marines just steal so much focus because they're such big personalities. So it's sort of hard to track him. So I, I actually agree. I think I've seen with him earlier, even just a moment, just something to make him stand apart. But maybe that maybe that wasn't, you know, that's not who he is. He's supposed to be one of the Marines who 
is on every Marine who then raises to, you know, this higher uh, echelon. That's kind of how I read it. I do love the scene of him and Ripley exchanging first names. Like, it's yeah. a little moment, but I don't know. That just, I just really like that. What was his? Michael Bean? <laughs> what was uh, his first name? I don't even remember Bean. that. Michael Bean Dwayne? I think it was Dwayne. Yeah, it was Dwayne. Sure. <laughs> the most I mean, it wasn't Dwight. So that's good. Okay. But we, we've, we've talked about Gorman, Apone, Hicks, Hudson. Uh, I mean, we have Bishop, who is our... We're, we're going to get a lot more on later, but he's the he's the robot for this mission. Uh, I'm sorry, artificial human. Yes, the artificial human yes, for this mission. He's aggressively horrified. He told us what language he wants to be referred yes, to. We respect you're... even fictional, like, artificial characters. You're correct. But let's talk about the character that is uh, both, like an exciting character in this movie and just a huge fucking problem in the middle of this movie, which is Private Vasquez, who is uh, our big muscular minigun toting, walking out in front of everybody, female character. She's got arms, she's badass, she's great. Also, half of her dialogue is sort of way over the top, like Latinx slang and and, uh, uh, Spanish. And she is played by a Jewish actress in brown face. Yeah. And the one in my thoughts about Vasquez are arms and the <laughs> thoughts. Also, this is straight up Fisher Stevens and short circuit level brown face. Yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. I mean, she was a gay awakening for a lot of people uh, watching this movie the first time. As, as was Ripley. Let's not. I was going to say beat around the bush, but. I'm sorry. There's a lot going on there, and Bill Paxton's character and all of his racist, sexist comments just kind of make it worse. A sentence you never want to have to say is, "If you can get past the brown face." Yeah, because the yeah. the the bit where like where Hudson says, "Hey, has anybody ever mistaken you for a man?" and she says, "Has anybody ever mistaken you for one?" Good, good stuff from her. Yeah. Bad stuff from him made really uncomfortable by like the levels of like not her that not the actual actress that's you know being portrayed here uh because there's a lot of spanglish being used by this character in a way that like people would pick like would really pick on now if you were to do it in a movie so Um, yeah i have some trivia that kind of makes it worse (laughs) okay uh and that is uh, Jeanette Goldstein, when she came in for audition, didn't realize that Aliens would be the sequel to Alien. Because, again, bad SEO. Right. So just saw that she was coming to, into uh, audition for a character named Vasquez, and it was called Aliens, and assumed it was a movie about immigration. So she that showed joke up is to made for... by Hudson. Yeah, Hudson makes that joke. And he says, oh, this is an alien. She thought she said illegal aliens, which, like, guys... It's the future. Can we not? Like, can we just, which, can we just not have that joke? Apparently caused her to show up to her audition for Vasquez, the colonial Marine in high heels and a short skirt and a blouse. I bet she looked fire though. Oh no. She said that because she was wearing the blouse with her arms, even though she didn't dress for the part at all, because the blouse showed off her arms, they they called her back for the callback (laughs) where she knew what, movie it was going to be this time well i mean it's the the bad seo she couldn't find it on google um and 
1986. It's not the first thing that appears on its own Google search now. But yeah, I mean, other than that group, we have Drake Frost, Dietrich Crow, and Wierzbowski, who are all dead within minutes of arriving on the planet. And Farrow and Spunkmeyer, who are the flight crew, who also don't even get any shots off. Like, they just really have a, a, a raw go of it. It's the name really... Spunkmeyer is so unfortunate. No offense to all you Spunkmeyers out there, but, you know, my heart goes out to you. I mean, especially yeah, considering he's the guy who who is alerted to the presence of the alien by finding a puddle of goo hanging around the the back of the uh, shuttle. Oh, uh, I didn't... <laughs> they have a line when they first get into the colony... And they're like, area secured. They are surrounded by mysterious acid blood stains. Nothing is secure. They haven't secured shit. Doing their best. <laughs> it's just like, well, everyone's clearly dead and we don't know why. Good job, everyone. Totally safe. It's, they, were no not great, they were not great at their job of being space marines. Like a lot of the orders being shouted generally were like, look around, like do the things that you're going to do. Like there was no strategy to that. It was well, just, yeah, that 60 like, years Stay later. frosty is as close as I can get to give you a, a direct order. And, and everybody- if I have to tell you to stay frosty, like I, I have not done my job 10 I, steps I, back. I right. like that in 60 years of technological development, after getting screwed over by sensors in the first movie, they're screwed over by sensors again for their inability to account for a Z axis. Wait, oh, it's Z and Y because of that, you know, they're like, wait, oh, wait, up. There's an up. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Um, I mean, the only other thing that happens before the planet uh, that I, I wanted to mention is that we are uh, introduced our loaders. The Chekhov's loaders. Yes, Chekhov's loaders. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be important later. Um, but this is very much James Cameron going, I am James Cameron and these are my special effects. Look at all the things that this loader can do. I um, love when Opone and Hudson are just bemused and slightly mind blown by Ripley being able to operate what is the sci-fi equivalent of a forklift. And, you know, she's also been doing that. Like as a job, which is yeah. apparently one of the most menial jobs that you can have in space, New York. Yeah, they are just like, look at this. Can you believe that she can do the very easy menial job that she has? Yeah. And I will also mention that a lot of these, you know, talking about triggers and stuff like that, trigger warnings in terms of language, a lot of these Marines, as they wake up, if we're talking about a co comparison with this movie and the original Alien, their language, this might as well be a full metal, full metal jacket because they're all like Arcturian Poontang and let's rescue these uh, colonists, colonists' daughters from their virginity. It's yeah, they're just... kind of assholes. Yeah. And by kind of, they're just assholes. Yeah. Um. So that's a thing, uh, especially if we're going to be looking at these uh, these Marines as some sort of part of the company and then, you know, talk about the uh, the military industrial complex or, you know, um, there we've talked about it. I think that's pretty much what we need to say about that. Theme covered. Check yeah. Box. Yeah. Go, the, the wild thing about we, we see the loaders and then they fly down to the planet and the special effects of flying through space are for some reason worse in this than they are in Alien. Like, Aliens, yeah. they, like, move slowly, but they look right. <laughs> and this, it's like, I, there's there's that change between the loader and this that you're like, what happened to the special effects? Ridley Scott and James Cameron, in their own way, 
are two of the greatest visual geniuses of the 20th century, but I feel like they're visually geniuses in very different ways. Oh, yeah. Well, J-Cam can really do, like, the ground thing. Like, he can put things on the ground and make the things on the ground look really cool. Yeah, he that's can what build... he excelled at. Yeah, he can build a, a cityscape. He can build vehicles on the ground. I mean, the, the plane looked great, but we started getting into, like, Dune vibes with that the dropship moving along the green screen you know like was it really obvious to everyone that this was not a model capable of folding in its landing gear i mean i felt like that was the case with the other one too but i didn't really probably accounts for why the alien queen got on it they they, they go in and, and uh check out this place obviously it's been attacked uh there's you know melted metal everywhere it's probably from alien blood uh, they decide that it's secure and they all go in and decide to go hang out in the med bay where there's live face huggers just hanging around. Definitely to... everything is secure. And um, this is where we get your totally uncensored face hugger in action where a face hugger dick comes out of its vagina mouth. Like everything is there. Every kind, there's a cloaca, you know, there's an ovipod, like there's every single kind of, of genitalia there. And, you know, I'm all for it. I, you know, I, I think with character glad, design. Glad we're on record with that one. I, I, I'm, <laughs> I mean, creativity is uh, really important for character and monster design. And, you know, it did, it did what it wanted to do. I feel like this movie did a good job exploring the horror of the face hugger in particular. Yeah. Like it's a very, it's a different experience that's still really scary. And honestly, one of my favorite scenes is when Ripley and Nude are trapped in the med bay with the face hugger. It's just a very different kind of monster scare that it was just a really effective scene all on its own that just explored the concept well. Yeah, and the fact that they immediately equate the facehugger injection of the, the um, chest burster to impregnation. It's not a parasite anymore, it's an embryo. You know, this language has changed. And when the facehugger goes for Paul Reiser, they're laughing and we're like, oh, it likes you a lot, you know, which uh, if you haven't seen it, there's a fantastic Saturday Night Live Mad About You Alien skit. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen it in a while. Ben Blacker, you're shaking your head. I haven't seen it. I would love to see it. I'm going to check it out. (laughs) Okay. Because, you know, it's been a really long time. So if it sucks, I don't remember. So don't hold (laughs) me accountable. I I will not hold you accountable. Rewatching Aliens made me realize that Paul Reiser's character in Stranger Things is who we wanted Burke to be. The company man who ends up actually having a heart of gold. Like that's who he is in Stranger Things and what I wanted Burke to be, but not in a sense like, oh, I wish the movie had made a different decision. Like I love what it did with Burke. Yeah. Just in the sense of like, ah, oh, this character is gonna is such an asshole. And I guess Paul this, Reiser's so likable. This this movie made it really difficult for me to remember the Stranger Things Paul Reiser because they're like kind of the same. Be uh, like, I don't remember a redemption arc for him, but I'll believe you because probably seen that more recently than i have um yeah and well, he does way less fucked up things to start with than burke does so that's true that helps and i will say this about burke speaking of burke being the worst you know they're on this dropship and they're they're um it, everything is super tense and he still takes the time to be super boring about like well my company manufactures those uh air purifiers and uh let me tell you about the model number it's very the profits we're making are really it's very lucrative yeah it's it's funny because i feel like the you want to look at bishop and be like oh he is like the ash of this movie but like ash is like the reading off handbook guy and that one that 
that Burke is in this one. Like Burke is way closer character-wise to the uh, you know evil evil robot from the first one. I feel like Bishop is a testament to transparency because everyone else in the crew, aside from Ripley, who's got her ash-based trauma, uh, is cool with Bishop mostly because they know he's an artificial uh, human as opposed to Ash, who was just, they just kept a secret and weird and everyone just low-key knew he was in the Uncanny Valley but didn't (laughs) actually know and just felt like they were being like subtly gaslit by his very existence. I also feel like Lance Henriksen, even though he is always 40, like he was born 40, he still looks more affable and just like I want to give Bishop a hug. I know he always has he's kind of like a basset hound. Like he always has that face where he's like, Oh, I'm when, just I'm an artif- I can do that. I'll go when they get that. off the drop ship at the end. He's like, I did did I do good, Ripley? I'm just like, Oh my goodness. This was I mean, like ultimately this is a movie about a woman learning to trust robots again. Yeah. Yeah. Look, and, you know, I'm not gonna say Mandalorian ripped off aliens, but I mean uh, you know she she learns to trust the robot and then she becomes a little bit robot herself to save the day you know yeah he's a robot from the inside and she's a robot from the outside <laughs> bishop i think is the real like unsung hero of this movie because not only does he like save the day a few times uh also i'm not climbing through a hype to get to this uh ship like yeah that dude's a hero let him do that but like after he get gets ripped in half he's still like saves newt with you know the severed upper half of his body he's like clinging to the, the floor and grabbing her whereas like uh ripley's I, ripley's ready to just wrestle this thing right out the door <laughs> i love just the image of half of lance Henriksen flailing like, <laughs> trying to get a manhole so they, they scan for all the colonists rfid chips because i guess all the colonists have rfid chips and they discovered that they all the colonists are weirdly hanging out in the bottom of the reactor so they're just going to drive over there and see what that's all about. And uh, the Marines just wander in and they're like, yeah, it's weird how all of this shit has been built over with some kind of sticky resin. It's <laughs> well, let's just keep checking this out and see what's going on. And this is a really cool, I mean, like, are they doing, they're, they're, are they making a club down here? We, we get Chekhov's thermonuclear reaction, which if they just started intentionally could have saved everyone a lot of time. Right. As soon as they mention. Oh, if you fire it off, there'll be a thermonuclear reaction. I'm like, okay, that's obviously going to happen. Just do it now. Just do it now. You know what's going to happen. You know what you're going to have to do. Gorman is like, don't shoot in there. Don't shoot no grenades. And they're like, what the fuck? And he's just like, just don't. And I'm like, do you want to tell him why? You want to tell him that they're you're like, that there's. Tell them. Tell them. It will do yeah. everybody a favor. Yeah. If you shoot in there, you will blow <laughs> up. Like that would be so you better get down here thing to pass on communication is key when you're in a leadership role just you know I love that Ripley is the one that notices this too she's like hey isn't that a giant fucking thermonuclear reactor above them maybe they shouldn't be shooting guns and uh and (laughs) and the company guy's like oh yeah you're probably right and and the actual guy in charge the lieutenant is like what now well, I mean, in for for Gorman's in Gorman's defense, he has Burke and Ripley. So, like, those are two very vastly different voices that are now saying the same thing. And I'd be like, wait, one of you always lies, and one of you always tells the truth. 
And now you're both saying the same thing. I need to go back to school because this is fucking weird. They find a colonist who's still alive, uh, just in time for a thing to rip out of her chest and for them to uh, start shooting at everything. And then, of course, that alerts the dozens, if not hundreds, of, of xenomorphs that are hanging around there who then make short work of better than half of the, the Marines. Uh, they manage to blow up the guy holding all the ammunition. Things go south real quick, and it's only by Ripley deciding to drive the Batmobile into the building that anybody is saved. Uh, and they manage to pull out you know, a handful of people, and, and even Gorman is knocked unconscious over the course of this, uh, this series of things. Now we have, we have glossed over one event here, a very important event, and that is the introduction of Newt. Um, Reintroduction of Newt. Well, reintroduction of Newt. Um, if you're watching the, the theatrical version, it is the introduction of Newt because she's that the scene of the colonists in the beginning is not in the uh, it's not in the theatrical version. The relationship with Newt and Ripley starts off, and it's really interesting because when they first encounter Newt, she's like running around, and they almost shoot her. Then she goes into a duct, and they're like, "Oh, it's in here!" And then they're like, "Ripley, go look at it." Like all these people decked out in, in guns and explosives and stuff. And they're like, Ripley, you're in a shirt. Go look and see if it's your your face hugger. You're our consultant. Consult your way through the duck. You have the best perception of all of us. But yeah, so Newt is is kind of like a little mirror for Ripley. Not only is she a someone that can inspire a, a maternal instinct in Ripley and a, a maternal quality, I should say. She is a very relatable character for Ripley because she is right out of this trauma, the trauma that had been denied Ripley when she survived. She is uh, also very fatalistic and even more fatalistic than the Marines. What's interesting to me about this character too, it only really comes up because of how many people that I've known that are uh, trans and relate to this character is that she is a character with a chosen name. And I don't think that this is this is something that was intentional because I don't think that, that in 1987 they were really thinking about this in the film. Maybe somebody in there, you know, had an idea, but the idea that she has a chosen identity, what she, you know, that's one of the ways that she and Ripley bond. The trauma bond, I think, is more significant, but I do think that talking about that, especially talking about uh, representation in movies, especially this movie has, you have to reach real, real far for any sort of LGBTQIA representation, you know, Vasquez aside, because that's a whole airplane cargo to unpack there. But um, um, the Newt character is really interesting. Um, and we'll talk a lot more about her later, but I wanted to mention that now. Ripley saves the day, manages to save uh, Hudson Hicks, as well as uh, Vasquez. They get the fuck out of there. Gorman's knocked out, so Hicks is in charge. Ripley wants to take off and bomb the whole thing from space. Burke is is still trying to preserve the creatures, even after he's seen them tear apart half of the uh, thing, just because he wants to take them back to the weapons division so they can use them as weapons. Hicks, to his credit, agrees with Ripley, which is the only reason that he survives anything in this movie. And they decide they're gonna they're gonna fly off back to the ship and bomb everything from orbit. Unfortunately, when they call in the ship, uh, it already has aliens on it. And poor old uh, poor old Pharaoh and Spunkmeyer don't make it. Uh, they crash, and pieces of the ship go everywhere. Hudson gets to tell us uh, that the game is in fact over. Yeah, you'd wonder. He said I the mean, line. Yeah, you said it. You'd think that the company would make rough terrain landers be able to like land on rough terrain a little bit easily, more easily, you know? Um, oh boy, this thing fucking falls apart too. Yeah. Like, this thing doesn't, it's not like the, like the ship and alien where they're like, well, it, it 
you know, cracked like three decks. It's going to take us 24 hours to, to repair it. This is like the thing fell to pieces. We've managed to find, you know, two boxes of ammo that survived the crash and that's it. Which is really when after that we get our whole, which we talked about when they kind of hunker down and try to survive inside the colony. We get our whole like 17 days. We won't survive 17 hours. And it's like, Hudson, you already said the game over line. We don't care about you anymore. You can die now. And now Ripley is actually taking charge. Like this is where she's now um, really leading the Marines because Gorman is out. And, you know, she was she took charge of the vehicle. But now she's like, all right, Hudson, this little girl survived. Um, I know how to talk to your sexist ass brain. If this little girl survived, then you can calm down because you're a Marine. Well, that's like Ripley has that great point where she says like this little girl with no training survived like all this time. There's a moment when they're doing their planning and that I love a little character moment from Hicks. Uh, It's when Newt is like jumping up, trying to like see the map and Hicks just like without a word, just kind of picks her up and puts her up so she can see and help out. I don't know. Just those kinds of little like, yes, I am listening to people. Like, again, that's why Hicks survived. Fucking yeah, and, and here Newt dons the helmet, too, which is... Uh, Newt's always doing some business helmet. in Newt scenes. Newt is always, like, around doing stuff, messing with things, like, having something to do, which I, I appreciate. She's not just, like, stuck in a corner and forgot about for most of the movie. Yeah, like, in the scene in Jurassic Park where they're trying to keep the Velociraptor from getting into the uh, computer lab, and that little kid is just sitting there with his hands, like... And, and uh, Laura Dern is trying to get the gun with her foot. And this little kid is just sitting there jumping up and down with his hands on his face. And I'm like, come on, <laughs> your sister's hacking. You could at least get her some water. I don't know. <laughs> Do something, little kid. Yeah. But yeah, yeah this is you- where we also get a ticking clock of the reactors about to blow. So even if somehow they could survive in this place with all these aliens, the whole thing is about to explode. So they have to get off somehow. They discover that Bishop can remote call the second shuttle down. Uh, but he's got to crawl all the way to where the antenna is to do it through the pipes. Uh, so Bishop is effectively not going to be able to help them survive. He's got to do this other thing. And this is like some descent level claustrophobia here. Like yeah, man. he is um, oh, thanks. basically I'll die. like, yeah, you're not, you're not gonna let, you're not gonna catch me going like two thousand meters through the pipes to, to all, the other it, end. It was a lot of meters. Yeah. Yeah, Newt tells them that the things come at night, so they decide to take a nap before the things show up. And this is where uh, Burke decides to go ahead and drop some face huggers in their room uh, where where Newt and Ripley are sleeping because uh, Ripley has uncovered the fact Burke just like told the colonists to go check out the ship where he told her that there were terrible aliens that were killing people and yeah. uh, didn't tell them anything about it. Burke straight up tells Ripley the master plan. He doesn't even sugarcoat it. He's like, we're just gonna kill everybody. Come on. It's cool. And it's so casual that it almost kind of slides off you. And she's, she's of course not having any of it, but he's like, we're just gonna kill everybody. We'll take, we'll take an alien back. All right. You know, I know we- what aliens movie spinoff I want now. Uh-huh. I want a Wolf of Wall Street style story about the executives at Wayland yutani I think Wolf of Wall Street is basically that. Just, you know, add the word xenomorph instead of like cocaine or something and then you're good. Like, but it's uh, mayhem again, right? Yeah. There's another scene here that's very important, which is the scene between Ripley and Newt. And Newt talks about how mommy said there aren't any monsters and there actually are. And it's a very important, like it's a bonding scene that is, I think really important when we're talking about like PTSD because the, this movie 
shows PTSD in a way that I think a lot of mo- a lot of action movies really don't. People made a big deal out of the PTSD in um, Iron Man three. And they were talking about uh, Tony Stark going through all this PTSD. And it was like, everyone was making a big deal out of that. And that's not something that people really talked about with aliens, but it was really, really well, especially for the time. It was really, really well portrayed by Sigourney Weaver. I really love this scene of Ripley and Noon. Ripley is putting her to bed. It's such, again, great acting from both Sigourney Weaver and also from Carrie Henn, who as, you know, child actors are, can always hit and miss, but she does a fantastic job as Newt. But this scene especially was such a great way of talking very compassionately and motherly to a child while still being honest with them and not talking down to her. And I just thought, think it's a just a beautiful and beautifully written and performed scene and definitely yeah. one of the you know as much of this we just think this movie as all horror and action all the time this is a quieter moment where the movie absolutely shines and this is in both versions so this will this is a is a uh, a gem in the heart of both versions they managed to survive this thing and then we have the series of action sequences of uh mostly they managed to really build a lot of suspense out of like numbers going down because we're basically <laughs> just like watching the the ammo count of these uh, automatic turrets go down, uh, knowing that at the point that these are spent, that you know the aliens will will be free to just run up on them. Yeah, they... I like the numbers going down. It's there's tension, there's action, and does a good job establishing just how overwhelming the xenomorphs numbers are. Everything involving them was not something in the theatrical cut and that's a cut i get (laughs) i I get why they cut out the multiple minutes of a computer screen showing numbers flashing down i mean you gotta i like the scene but if i'm in that editor's booth yeah i get where you're coming from on that one yeah there are two like very i mean these are two very different paced movies the theatrical version and the uh, the special edition because of you know special edition is two and a half hours long. Yeah, I I, I was watching that thing all day. This was this was a tough one to finish of the work week. I feel like it took me eight hours to watch this two and a half hour movie. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, because from this point, you know, we have uh, again they repeat like we were talking about the gag with the motion detectors, which is like they see that the guys are getting closer and then they're like close enough they should be in the room. And then Ripley thinks to, you know, peek in the ceiling and there they are inches away from them. They run, they go through the pipes, uh, they lose Hudson to, you know, a, a thing that's, that pulls him under the ground. Uh, Burke locks himself away to try and uh, save him and fuck everybody else. And uh, he ends up locking himself up with an alien. Dun, 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 dun. So, so he's gone. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, <laughs> Vasquez ah, and Gorman get cornered and end up blowing themselves up in the vents. Uh, so all that's left is is Ripley Hicks and, I, and I like that heroic yeah. sacrifice. Like we talked yeah. in our Resident Evil episode about how the heroic sacrifice is kind of the only way these characters who are kind of fated to die by their genre can have like a satisfying triumphant ending and how unsatisfying it was when no characters in Resident Evil got that heroic sacrifice. They were so, going to a bunch of times too. Yeah, like, they kept trying to heroically sacrifice themselves and then surviving and then dying for no reason towards the end. Like, yeah. So Vasquez and Grumman, um, I don't know. I just thought that was 
a nice moment. I thought that was a suitably badass ending for Vasquez. And... Vasquez going out on the line, Gorman, you always were an asshole, is a real, that's a classic. Great line. Yeah. And like you said, just a really good capstone to Gorman's character arc in this movie. So yeah, just as far as a character getting that kind of classic heroic sacrifice in a horror movie, I was a fan of this one. They had put Burke on blast for his shit. And he still was just like letting that shit slide off of him. Like it was, it's incredible. If you ever want to be a sociopath, just, just, just be like Paul Reiser. If you're just, look, just watch this movie. Just, you know, I yeah. know there's a bunch of movies about Ted Bundy. Fuck that. That's, that's dramatization. Yeah. And I mean, over the course of this escape to Hicks gets injured and Newt gets taken by the aliens. Ripley like literally carries Hicks back to the shuttle. There, uh, there is a moment that felt a little slapstick when Newt's caught in the gears and Ripley's reaching for her and she grabs the jacket and then immediately Newt just slides out of the jacket and goes down like a super slide. Button your jacket if you're in a survival situation. Like Button if it weren't for the aliens, that looked, that looked like a fun slide. Like they probably have a few takes where uh, like Carrie Henn just went like, wee! <laughs> Ripley decides that she's, she's got to go save uh, Newt. So arms up with every gun possible and uh tells bishop to go land at the uh at the processing station and uh descends in to go fight the queen all on her own um well she doesn't know there's they've talked about there possibly being a queen nobody's actually seen proof of this at this point she walks in just like an ant hive it's like an ant hive right there's a mama yeah and uh ripley is uh, saves Newt from a face hugger who is about to implant her and is wandering back and just finds herself sort of in the middle of this field of eggs. And we see first this thing just sort of dropping these eggs. We see just sort of this enormous queen standing in the middle of it. And we realize terrifying reveal. Great yeah. design. So it is a uh, rough just design. Moi. Like uh Ben, y'all got any thoughts on like our queen and this kind of descent into hell against her? I think it was the queen reveal that uh made a lot of young people watching realize they were gay. <laughs> not Vasquez, not Ripley. <laughs> but this alien queen. queen. Something it's... about that head those head ridges. Those no, I think it's <laughs> the legs. I mean maybe the ridges. That she tail, oh yeah. yeah. Rib for your pleasure, but... Um, As Bishop can attest. I'm sorry, I just have to say right now, like, when Ripley is on that ship with Bishop, I'm just thinking, like, how ideal, like, if if it wasn't for... Even with the Queen, you know, they all survive. They have, like, half Bishop, like, a woman, her girl, and her android manservant drifting the galaxy fighting aliens. Like, is that not the life? She's also got the, the one guy who listens to her as long for the ride as well. Oh, yeah. I- so, um, gay icon, alien queen. Um, yeah, we have two moms standing off, uh, protecting their children. Yeah, two uh, girl bosses. Yeah, the the queen's not going to attack her because she's got her flamethrower pointed on all the eggs. Uh, Ripley is is cool with that until she gets to the edge of the field and then decides to toast all of the eggs before running to the elevator. One of the eggs um, is hatching, Jeremy. Yeah. Ripley is Ripley is totally valid. Okay, <laughs> yeah. and she does make a face to the queen where she's like really like i i agreed and then you do this uh-uh all your babies are going bye-bye um and uh those legs though <laughs> that's fucking gams the practical effects like 
the alien queen screams and it seems like a scream of pain and i feel it when she rips off like her own egg sack like that looks like fucking champion for practical effects right there yeah and that thing is like also placed where you would think it would be and you know now ripley goes up the elevator and then it turns out so does the queen uh she comes up the other elevator behind her uh the ship's not there but then bishop swoops in at the last minute to pick her up they fly off everything is great bishop uh, uh bishop asks for the you know head pat to say what a good boy he was um, bishop you dramatic artificial <laughs> bitch and then he gets <laughs> then he gets uh impaled and torn in half by the queen you know then we we have newt sort of running around trying to avoid the thing as ripley runs in to change into her giant mech suit so that she can uh go have a one-on-one fight other like right there with that uh game over man quote the one other like line in this that i i've seen enough times to say with the movie is that that get away from her you bitch that ripley delivers right there which is just like it's so well done that that could have been such a dumb and campy line um it, but you it's just, all like, down feel it to coming from Sigourney it's, Weaver. yeah it's all down to the delivery and weaver just beyond crushes the line like it absolutely could have been silly and instead it's just the coolest line in the whole movie this is the coolest part of the whole movie i think and And i'm this is a movie that is like all cool shit you know (laughs) but this this is really like the most fantastic payoff so yeah they they have have a wrestling match and uh sigourney weaver uh, ripley throws her out the thing uh and bishop's bishop half a robot at this point still manages to uh save the day um and they uh keeps keeps newt from flying out the airlock uh and they all go have nice ice naps before dying off screen between aliens and alien three well two things to point out at this point right one is we we pay off the newt falling out of her jacket by having the alien queen take ripley's shoe with her into the vacuum of space there you go right uh, all sorts of Chekhov's everything's in this movie. Uh, and the other thing is, like, as much credit as Bishop is getting on this podcast for being half a dude and still saving the day, and rightly so, I, I won't argue it, uh, I will say that Ripley muscling her, her way through the vacuum of space is next level. Like, she's got her arm wrapped around a ladder, and the vacuum of space... I think. I don't know. I'm not some science oh, yeah. expert, man. But it seems like the vacuum of space has a big reputation for um, being a vacuum. Every <laughs> movie I've not seen. Only, she not only stops herself from getting sucked into it, she crawls up the ladder to outside the, the hole in the ship that leads to the vacuum of space to turn it off there. She, she doesn't shut it off where she shut it on. Uh, which is, I think, bad spaceship design. Yeah. I, again, I'm not a science man. I don't know. Maybe that's necessary. But she overcomes the vacuum of space to turn off the door. I do love that when she's like, the door is open. The alien is only, queen is only hanging on to her foot. And all she has to do is like, let go. At no point does she even consider a heroic sacrifice. She knows she's got this. Fuck that she's not letting the vacuum of space take her down now. Yeah, she shouldn't let, let my two dads take her down. She let an alien queen take her down. She's not gonna let the vacuum of space take her down. 
Absolutely mm-hmm. not. And I mean, Bishop says not bad for a human. And I think that that really emphasizes your point too, because, you know, we are giving Bishop a lot of credit. He is an Android man, excuse me, an artificial human, you know, no offense, Bishop, but he does have certain, a certain set of skills, which an artificial human would have, you know, having him there is really nice and reliable. He still, you know, can get fucked up, but Ripley again, does manage to overcome the vacuum of space. I think she also recognizes the vacuum of space as her ally against this, this alien queen. So, you know, when yeah, the enemy of my enemy, when yeah, the loader is fighting, when she's fighting the alien queen in the loader, there's something so low tech and yet so satisfying when she hits the queen with those oh, claws yeah. and like grabs her head. Oh, I felt it. But when, but when Bishop said not bad for a human, and then they all froze frame and then rolled credits. I thought that was not the tone. Yeah. or they I were did like, think it was weird. Yeah, I did think it was weird how they all kind of like jumped up and made a pose midair. <laughs> I mean, that was pretty Half cool for Half of Bishop Michigan. jumped up. And, <laughs> <laughs> and Mr. Miyagi nodded and they played the yeah. rest around. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the silhouette. Now, I, want, I know there was a comic to where they did like alien from the perspective of jones the cat i really want them to make a what? sequel oh yes that's that's a comic i know you can at least find it on amazon oh <gasps> it's the whole thing from like the perspective of jones just looking for a place to nap i want i hope they made a sequel where it's still jones perspective on aliens but it's just him spending like a bunch of lazy days in this apartment with a cat sitter <laughs> That sounds riveting. Just stays behind. Yeah, I'd like that Ripley is specifically like, and you're not going to the alien planet with me. Jones yeah. is like, whatever. I mean, Jones is the fact that Jones has lasted that long for a cat, like that's pretty intense. Like, I think Jones does deserve to like live a cat life and just like piss on everything. Jones and... is a really fucking old cat. He was frozen for 57 years. There's not too many cats that can claim that kind of lifespan. Alien yeah. three could have turned it all around if Ripley gets to this prison and then Jones the cat is just waiting there being like, what's up? Waiting for you to I, get here. I'm here too I think now. Jones the cat, what are those things in um, uh, Captain Marvel? Flurkins. cat thing? Yeah, Flurkins. Lurkins, yeah, Jones is one of those. I think we're all, we're all on that He's, page. They they picked up Jones from LV two four five. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think we've hit on all the like big political points we we wanted to make towards the end here. I mean, obviously, like there's there's some great femi- feminism stuff in this movie. There's some real troubling stuff as far as like how people of color are treated in this movie, uh, including a non person of color brown face brown you face. can just say it the brown face <laughs> yeah yeah i mean uh, opponent and frost are pretty solid before they uh die very early in the movie um uh, opponent in particular is great but um yeah the, they're the I only real was... people of color and they they go out pretty pretty early look and opponent's gonna be great ironic. again when he comes back for the halo games <laughs> yeah but frost dying um by fire that was a bit Ross is easily the most horrible death, I think, because he's holding all of the ammunition and then gets lit up by a flamethrower and yeah. it continues to explode as he falls down a hole. Like he like explodes multiple times. <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> um, so uh, I I did ask. I, I did want to say. Uh, I mean, would we all 
considering even some of the the flaws and, and things that have changed over time with this, would we all still recommend people check this out? Absolutely. It's Absolutely. A, it's a staple, not just of the genre, but of cinema. So Benz, I'm actually curious as to what about this movie, like specifically if there's something you wanted to talk about with this movie, because, um, you know, there's a, uh, y'all suggested a few different movies from what I remember. Um, but what about this one really stuck out? Um, it was the one that Jeremy asked us to do. Um, <laughs> no, we, we sent a list of movies that we love and we thought would make for rich discussions, and this one has. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, now, if, if people did watch this and enjoy it, uh, Benz, do you have anything you would uh, recommend people check out after this? Well, Alien 3 and then Alien Resurrection. And Prometheus? They should check that out. Alien versus Predator? <laughs> I think um, I agree that Alien Three is not too, too bad. It just it really gets off on the wrong foot and then <laughs> sends you down. Like yeah, it's hard to dig out of that. Um, and there's a lot of stuff to like in Resurrection too. I think. Yeah, the Spider Gang is pretty great. As I recall. Look, look, Sigourney Weaver fucking nails that. Be like over the shoulder basketball yeah, shot. Basketball. <laughs> Ron Perlman in is it Janae? Yeah, Janae. It's just so, it's so fucking weird to me. It's like when I found out that like, and and it's not so much of a disaster as as M. Night Shyamalan doing Avatar Last Airbender, but it was like when I found that out and I was like, what? Because, you know, you have, I mean, City of Lost Children, sure. Delicatessen, okay. I mean, like they're very visually rich films and, and very quirky films. But then like, you know, I guess he did Amelie after that. So, but it, you know, uh, Jean-Pierre Jeanet and Joss Whedon, like together. Do you pronounce it Joss? Because of the French. Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon and Jean-Pierre Jeanet. Jean-Pierre Jeanet? Chateau in the forêt. I don't know French. Je comprends un peu. I guess check out Predator 2 just to see how sequels go. Um, Listen to yourselves to some Super Ego. Find all the Giger bits. Oh, yes. um, let that be your, your entry uh, if you haven't heard Super Ego. Um, there's an, actually, there's an episode of the, with a Super Ego crew that I would specifically recommend that is Paul F. Tompkins as William Hurt talking about, and, and I think there was the, I can't remember who does Giger. But they're they're do, basically doing um, a, a commentary track to the original Alien, um, and it's really fucking funny. And while we're on the the girly tip, he does a great "I Was There Too" with Vasquez, right? Yeah, with Jeanette uh, Greenstein. He he does a few of them. Jeanette. Jeanette. Oh wait. Um, he does a few, and then he does one. He does one with her, and then one with. Um, all of the colonial marines that he could get um and that's the i was there too podcast it's definitely worth a listen absolutely cool yeah i uh the the main things that i would think to recommend after this were the the same things that we talked about last week because i i think the thing that really hits harder in this one even than the first alien is the evil corporation bits and the you know people just trying to survive weird shit in space so like the the both the mars core podcast and uh we fix space junk which is also a 
a podcast which is about people working for an evil corporation just fixing shit in space um and is is well made and hilarious and, and definitely worth checking out i think if you are looking for another 80s cinema classic that defined the classic sequel while also trading horror for more action directed by james cameron uh terminator 2 comes to mind as a ah, movie yes. worth checking out yeah. a i have seen movie, that boy a sequel to a movie that also stars michael bean can you ah, add yes. in me saying terminator 2 instead of predator 2 before yes yes absolutely right. thank you <laughs> although i do want to talk about predator 2 on this podcast because that movie is a oh that's a doozy Talk about classism and racism and the whole, the all sorts of isms in that one. I just recently saw the sequel to Predator, the real sequel to Predator, which was Robert Rodriguez's Predators. I love Predators. This movie, now this movie is ridiculous. This is not the, I mean, I will say that Aliens is a science fiction masterpiece with with all of its uh, flaws, very big glaring flaws, uh, brown face, sexism, racism etc um without really you know giving that a, i mean anyway but uh the predators movie is a lot of fun if you're into this sort of same kind of genre um action film and then i would also recommend soldier with kurt russell because apparently that movie is about how the colonial marines are trained it's actually in canon with alien there are just no xenomorphs in it and then uh starship troopers if you want I was some just about to say starship troopers <laughs> yeah. i love a space marine predators yeah, is a movie where you can tell they spent a lot of time looking up real stra- tactics and hunting strategies and then went let's throw that all away so in predator it can have a samurai duel with a yakuza guy <laughs> and that's the kind of energy i will always be here for <laughs> absolutely yeah i think uh, starship troopers is also the movie version is a great example of what happens if that sigourney weaver line doesn't land at the end <laughs> because yeah. the because uh, get away from her, you bitch! Is is no? You're some kind of big smart bug, aren't you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is that line in Starship Troopers, which does not work. Yeah, what with Nazi Troopers... Doogie Hauser? Are you that telling me? It's incredible though. Like it's a completely different. I mean, it's it's all like parody. It's like it what Doctor Strange Love is to war movies. This movie is to aliens. Like this movie is completely satire and um. You know, it's still kind of like so, so deadpan about it in cases that you're just like, really? Okay. All right. I'll, I'll, I'm on board this dumpster fire. I will surf on it. And it sounds great. And then The Abyss is also cool. If you're like J-Cam. You can add that to the end of any discussion. And The Abyss is also cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Um, the movie and the concept. (laughs) This has been our discussion of Paddington too. And also The Abyss is pretty cool. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's gonna be uh, our on, outro on that note uh ben's can you let people know where they can find you online if they're looking for more of your work you can find me on twitter at ben blacker that's where to find my greatest work also twitter it is ben b-n-a-c-k-e-r i left off that first e for saving awesome and I mean, if you if you don't already subscribe to it, go, you know, subscribe to the Thrilling Adventure Hour. You won't regret it. 
Um, start with Jeremy's episodes. Yeah, definitely start with yeah. my episodes. They won't make any sense if you start with them, but do it anyway. Yeah. Fuck it, anyway. live on the edge. Tweet us. Tweet <laughs> us if you want a recommendation. Makes sense. Come on. <laughs> uh, and uh, Ben, can you let uh, other Ben can you let people know where they can find you online? So we have Ben, Ben's, and Ben Three. Okay, yes. right. Uh, <laughs> you can find me at Twitter at at Ben the Con. Uh, you can find. My past work, uh, physical and digital comicsology at bencomics.com. Renegade Rule from Dark Horse Comics, co-written by Rachel Silverstein with art by Sam Beck, is in stores now. And uh, keep an eye out for my next graphic novel uh, coming out in September, which is the uh, graphic novel tie-in to Ubisoft's Immortals Phoenix Rising. Awesome. And Emily, where can people find you online? Um, I'm Megamoth. On Twitter, M-E-G-A-M-O-T-H. Uh, I'm pretty much there everywhere. I mean, Megamoth, that is. Megamoth.net. .com. And Megamoth on Patreon. Except for Instagram, where I'm Mega underscore Moth. Because someone beat me to it. Um, but that's okay. I know, right? Um, that fucker. It's, a, it's okay. Fucking Moth. They're in Israel. Um, I don't know if they're fine, but sure. Um, and uh, find Prince Lists wherever fine books are sold at your local um, independent bookstore or on bookshop.org. Awesome. And uh, <laughs> I am, of course, uh, jrome58, both on Twitter and Instagram. My website is jeremywhitley.com. And then, uh, you know, Prince List, Raven, the Pirate Princess. And uh, coming up, we have the second book of School for Extraterrestrial Girls, which is available for pre-order now. Uh, and the podcast is progressively horrified on Patreon. It's Prague Horror Pod on Twitter, and it's progressively horrified.transistor.fm. Please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're listening to this. We would really appreciate it. And I, speaking of appreciating things, Ben, Ben, thank you so much for coming and, and joining us tonight and talking about aliens. It's an honor. Thanks for having us, guys. Yes, it's, this was wonderful. Like, thank you so much for coming on and joining us. Thank you so much for real. It's an honor. Good time. Thank you. All right. And thank, uh, thank you again for Emily and, and Ben for being here. Uh, as always, uh, love you guys. And thank you to everybody out there listening. Uh, we really appreciate you checking us out. And we will talk to you again next week. Later. Progressively Horrified was created and produced by Jeremy Whitley. This episode featured Jeremy Whitley, Ben Kahn, Emily Martin, Ben Acker, and Ben Blacker. All opinions expressed are the, by the commentators are solely their own and not intended to represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers, nor do they represent any of the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Cole 06 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. Support us on Patreon or contact us on Twitter by Prague Horror Pod or by email at progressivelyhorrified at gmail.com. <laughs>